The following is a CSPN Media podcast presentation. Hello, and welcome to Know the Score. I'm your host, Don DeLorente, and I'm joined by the Libra icon. What's going on, Dwayne? Hey, uh, not too much. I'm just working overtime, and I'm glad to be done for now, and glad to be on here yet again. All right. Thank you for joining us. Just letting everybody know, Know the Score is brought to you by CSPN. You can find us on our website at CSPN.us. You can also find us on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Stitcher Radio. You can also find us on Twitter. Follow the show Twitter account at KTSPod. You can follow me on Twitter at Don DeLorente. And you can follow Dwayne on Twitter at The Libra Icon. So, Dwayne, we're getting into it. Divisional round playoffs. NFL last week took place. Uh, we have four games um, two on Saturday, two on Sunday. So, we will start with. The Philadelphia Eagles, the home underdog, beating the Atlanta Falcons 15 to 10. Uh, the Eagles defense stopped Atlanta in the final seconds on the goal line. Atlanta ran the goat of all goal line plays, sprint right option, but Julio Jones fell down and uh, they only had one option actually on the route. And so when he once he fell down, it was kind of, you know, Tried to extend the play out so he could get back up. He got back up. Matt Ryan threw the ball a little bit over his head. Some people say he could have caught it. Some people say if he caught it, he would have been out of bounds anyway. Um, Julio thinks he should have made a play. But nonetheless, the Eagles, the home underdogs, survive and advance to the NFC Championship game. So, Dwayne, uh, your thoughts on the final play and just, uh, you know, Nick Foles not doing much, but he's getting it done. Well, it was a good win for the Eagles. I was. Thoroughly impressed by the defense of Philadelphia flying all over the ball. It's not like they were any slouches anyway. This defense has been on point all season long. And so when you have a great defense behind you, it makes the offense easier for Nick Foles to run. And he did his thing. And so the Falcons couldn't get anything going. You know, their defense played very well. Also, they needed to just make a few more plays on offense. And as for that final play, I thought Julio could have caught the ball, and perhaps maybe it would have been out of bounds, um, but maybe not. And so it really is just one of those things where it truly is a game of inches. I hate to use that cliche, but it is true, and especially in this case. And and uh, shout out to the Eagles. You know, they played the underdog card. I love the fact they used the underdog mask to kind of mock everybody, you know, how they were pretty much left for dead as the number one seed, and now they are in the championship game, one win away from the Super Bowl. So uh, it'll be a great matchup, and we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. The sprint right option is, I call it the GOAT goal line play because it's the play that basically started the Joe Montana 49er dynasty. Um, it's one yeah, it's won so many football games down here, you know, inside the red zone, inside the five. And usually teams run it from anywhere between the five and the three-yard line. So you give your quarterback the option to run, which is kind of where the option part comes in. But um, Atlanta chose to run it, you know, right there at the goal line. So once Julio Jones fell down, Matt Ryan really didn't have anywhere to kind of run to try to maybe run it into the end zone. And, and they only had the one option. Usually teams will have like a running back or in a flat or something like that to try to – 
gives the quarterback a couple of guys to throw to. But Atlanta just, you know, ran a different variation. And unfortunately for them, Julio Jones fell down because I would have liked to seen him, you know, be able to keep his footing and, and try to make a contested, you know, a really good effort on that pass. I know he's probably going to be really dejected uh, all offseason about that. But like you said, the defense of the Eagles has been really good all year. They put a lot of pressure on the quarterback. They have really fast linebackers, and their secondary has come around um, during uh, the season. Uh, still a big question mark. I mean, they've had some rough games in the uh, back half of the season. I know the uh, Giants really put a number on them, um, even though they came back to win that game. That was one of the best games Eli Manning had all season. The receivers for the Giants played out of their minds. So, um, it'll be interesting to see, you know, their secondary, if that part of their defense can hold up moving forward. Next, we'll move on to the Patriots as they cruise past the Titans, 35 to 14. Uh, started out really fast for the uh, Titans as they scored first. A beautiful pass from uh, Mariota to Davis on an inside fade route, one-handed catch in the end zone. And it looked like maybe the Titans, you know, had some momentum, scored first, put a little bit of pressure on the Patriots. And then the Patriots proceeded to score Five straight times, five straight touchdowns. They sacked Mariota eight times. Um, they really shut down the running game of Murray. And then on third down, they really put the clamps on Mariota. He couldn't make enough plays to keep the Titans on the field. Uh, so, Dwayne, kind of your synopsis of uh, the Titans season coming to a close. I mean, it was a good season for Tennessee. I think they did a lot of growing up and a lot of maturing and you know, to get to the playoffs for the first time since 2008 is a remarkable accomplishment for this team. And they are going to be pretty well going forward. Um, you know, at first, we pretty much knew Mike Malarkey would have been back as the head coach of the Titans. But it looked like there might have been created, uh, created differences, so to speak, with the um, offensive coordinator, I think one of the things they want to do is get rid of the offensive coordinator, uh, Terry Rubisky, but Malarkey would not budge on that, and as a result, they parted ways. So there's now a vacancy in Tennessee. I know we probably thought that Josh McDaniels was lined up for that Indianapolis Colts job, but I think Titans GM John Robinson is going to try to make a play for McDaniels. He was their target before the vote of confidence for Mike Malarkey. And it'll be interesting to see if they can get McDaniels into Nashville to coach the Titans and, you know, even intensify that rivalry with the Colts even more. But a great season for the Tennessee Titans. They just ran into that juggernaut that is known as the New England Patriots and didn't have an answer for it. Derrick Henry had no uh, chance. DeMarco Murray was out. And, you know, Mariota, this was just a growing up game for him. All right. Now with the Titans uh, coaching a vacancy and, you know, Josh McDaniels, of course, they're looking to go offensive uh, with the, you know, young quarterback and trying to generate more offense. Do you think that the Josh McDaniels part two, second time around, can he be the offensive Bill Belichick? You know, Bill Belichick had a stint with Cleveland, got fired, went back, became a successful defensive coordinator for like a decade, then became a head coach again. And then we all know what the history is. Um, do you think the Titans are kind of maybe banking on that, that McDaniels, but the second time around, have a better um, you know, understanding of what it takes to be a head coach and how to handle players? I believe so. And with John Robinson being the GM of the Titans, he's worked with the Patriots in the front office. So he knows Josh McDaniels, and he's going to give him, I believe if they do end up striking a deal, he's going to give this team 
an offensive boost, and I believe Josh McDaniels learned a lot uh, from his first time around as a head coach, and that's why his name is popping up again. Normally, situations like that, you get blacklisted, but, you know, you go back to you go back to the team that you came from, you learn a lot more, you mature, and, you know, you get with a maturing team and a maturing coach, I believe it would be a great fit. So it's going to be one of those things where the Titans will try to make that move. You know, Josh McDaniels really has two great offers and two great quarterbacks to work with, and if he can build a defense around that offense, then they'll be in great shape, you know, either team. And I think the Titans have the advantage defensively, so if you keep Dick LeBeau on as your defensive coordinator and you just work the offense or get the offensive coordinator, you're going to be in great shape. All right, we will definitely keep an eye on the Tennessee Titans and their coaching vacancy. So we'll move to the Sunday games and the Jacksonville Jaguars went into the Pittsburgh and they stunned the Steelers 45 to 42. The Jaguars behind Leonard Fournette early and Blake Bortles late held off a furious comeback from the Steelers. Uh, The Steelers actually had to uh, give up the sticks if this was Madden. They were down 21 nothing before they got off the mat. And then, uh, you know, like I said, they started to come back. But, you know, Jacksonville seemed to have an answer at every turn. And, uh, you know, even though they were leaking oil late, they made enough plays on the arms of Blake Bortles, of all people, down the stretch to get the first downs and milk the game out. And uh, Jacksonville moves on to the AFC Championship game to face the New England Patriots. So, Dwayne, kind of, you know, take me through, um, you know, what your observation of this shocking upset was. To me, it wasn't shocking. I think Jacksonville has the Steelers number. They use the same formula that they did in the beating that they gave the Steelers at Heinz Field earlier this season. And it was really glad and really good that the Steelers made it a game, you know, and a really great game. But every time the Pittsburgh Steelers had some momentum, Jacksonville had to answer for it. So uh, Blake Bortles. He used his arm and his legs. Leonard Fournette had a monster game. The defense made plays when it counted. And, you know, Duval till we die. I mean, I'm on this uh, Jacksonville bandwagon right now because this team is, you know, they have everything going right for them. And that's going to make a very, very interesting matchup that we'll uh, talk about in a little bit. But what I'm going to say is this. The Steelers just did not have it in them. I think Ben Roethlisberger, he had eight turnovers in two games with the Jaguars this season. And and it was just something that, you know, you think in the playoffs, you presume, hey, it's going to be Pittsburgh, New England. I did. I was one of those that picked the Steelers. But once I saw their going up against the Jaguars, I kind of had a feeling that the Jaguars have more of a chance than you know, I and myself wanted to believe, but, you know, you kind of just like, okay, Pittsburgh's going to make those adjustments. Now that they are off to the offseason, heading home, Jaguars moving on. Shout out to them. I thought a very telling part of this game was on that first drive where Jacksonville got down there uh, to the one-yard line, fourth and goal, and they went for it. 
and they punched it in and got the touchdown. It told me that Jacksonville was here to win. They weren't just here to kind of play it close and try to maybe squeak it out at the end. Like they were going to bring it to Pittsburgh. And then on the next drive, Ben throws an interception. And then the next play, Fournette runs it in from, from like 20 yards. So, you know, it's 14 nothing, bang, bang, before people's, you know, foam on their beer can settle. So, you know, they got off to a great start and then, you know, put the pressure on Pittsburgh. And, and you could tell that the pressure was getting to Pittsburgh's players and their coaching staff with a lot of the decisions, the fourth down plays, especially uh, the fourth and inches, the fourth and one, you know, running sweeps, throwing passes. Um, a lot of those were, you know, incomplete early. And then they started making those, uh, you know, some of those late in the game. So it's kind of a mixed bag for, you know, Pittsburgh on fourth down. But a couple of those early fourth down plays really cost them and helped Jacksonville build that big lead. And then, you know, like like we said, they just kind of held on, made enough plays between the defense and Blake Bortles and, you um, I thought it was improbable that Jacksonville, especially would score 45 points. I, I thought if they won, it might be just an ugly rock'em sock'em defensive game. But I thought if the score got high, that uh, the Steelers would, you know, be able to prevail just because that's kind of their game. It's more of a shootout game. Uh, Antonio Brown was Antonio Brown. So, you know, whatever injury concerns that people might have had about him, uh, he put up a, a monster game, eight catches over 130 yards, a couple of touchdowns, um, some spectacular, you know, touchdown catches. So um, that guy's unreal. So, you know, like you said, shout out to Jacksonville and uh, the people down there who have, you know, really waited and suffered a long time. And, uh, you know, just continue to, you know, be on this ride. The final game of the divisional playoffs was probably the most memorable. As the Vikings moved past the Saints on the Miracle and many, 29 to 24. Stefan Diggs with a desperation catch and run walk off TD to prevail the Vikings to Philadelphia. Well, they were faced the Eagles in the NFC championship game. Um, this game had everything. It, it had uh, the last three minutes of this game was was epic. You know, it's like a bas- like a college basketball game. Uh, one team's got the lead. One team comes back, gets the lead. Another team, you know, comes back, takes the lead again. You think it's over, and it wasn't. Um, just a misplay by the Saints cornerback, the young rookie Williams, who actually made a spectacular interception to keep the Saints in the game. It looked like the Vikings were going to run away with it. So, you know, he was, I guess, worried about getting a pass interference and ducked his head and didn't see Diggs and whiffed on the tackle and in a desperation mode where it looked like Diggs was going to kind of go out of bounds and give him a chance for a field goal. Nope. He turned it up and there was nothing but Greenfield in front of him and he ran it in for a walk-off. Um, you know, one of the wildest, craziest things that anybody's ever seen, um, you know, just – I can't explain it, you know, sports. That's all I can chalk it up to. So, uh, Dwayne, kind of your your thoughts on this game. Um, you know, the Vikings defense um, really kind of let them, let the, you know, let them down a little bit. I guess I had to do kind of with the offense as well. They didn't really make a lot of moves in the second half as far as moving the ball, keeping, you know, the chains going. So the defense had a couple more extra drives against Drew Brees and he started to get to him. And then, you know, he's the best two minute quarterback in the NFL and the game was close in the final two minutes. And he, uh, you know, did what he did. And we thought he was going to steal another one. I just wanted to say, ha, 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 ha to the Saints, but no, um, that was pretty epic. It was one great finish, and I'm really, really impressed by the fact that the Vikings have gotten this far, and what's even more impressive is they're doing it with um, a quarterback who's been a little, he's been all over the NFL, he's um, been a backup, been a starter, 
has been ineffective, has been effective this season. And it's just really crazy how that Case Keenum was really just brought in as the third stringer, you know, our backup really to while Teddy Bridgewater was rehabbing and Sam Bradford was the guy. But now Case Keenum, this is his team. I really believe this is his team now. I really think that it's his time and what he the ball that he threw to Stefan Diggs was a beautiful pass. It was right on the money. Only Stefan could catch that ball. And like you said, you know, you had the the whiff on the tackle. Um, you know, things happen and and then you get the Minnesota Miracle now and that's going to live in playoff lore forever. It's going to live in both of these teams' um, history forever. And it's just not one of those things we get to see, like the Holy Roller, the Immaculate Reception, the Music City Miracle, things like that. So we get to see that unfold, and it's pretty amazing to see these things kind of go down like that. And so with that being said, you know, you got – two guys who were teammates with the Rams playing each other in the NFC title game as starters for opposing squads. Um, you know, Minnesota, you know, they got to go on the road, and they could be right back at home uh, playing the game, the game that they are hosting. So I can't wait to see what happens there. And, you know, great game by both teams. You know, the Saints did come back. They made it very interesting. The Vikings defense, you know, they laxed. And I think they thought, you know, okay, we're up by three possessions, four possessions. Let's coast a little bit, play in the prevent, and prevent defense prevents you from victory. So, um, but they clamped down when they needed to, and then the miracle happened, and that was that. All right. Just a reminder that this is Know the Score. Know the Score is brought to you by the CSPN. You can find us on CSPN.us. You can also find us on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and SoundCloud. So we'll move on to the preview championship weekend. We'll start out with the Jacksonville Jaguars traveling to New England to face the New England Patriots. The Patriots um, had a little drama. Tom Brady apparently has a cut on his throwing hand. He's been reportedly in and out of practice this week. There's a lot of speculation. Is he going to play? Of course, he's going to start. But how well will he play? How many stitches did he have to get? You know, there's a lot of secrecy because that's who the Patriots are and that's how they operate. And then on the other side, you have the Jacksonville Jaguars with Tom Coughlin roaming around the building. I'm pretty sure they've got the uh, Super Bowls from the New York Giants playing on the loop inside the building. So those guys on defense, that defensive line can see how to work and get to Tom Brady and that it can be done and that Tom Coughlin has the blueprint. So this is going to be a very interesting matchup. So, Dwayne, your thoughts on what the Jaguars and Patriots will be able to do to each other and who will come out victorious to be the first team in this year's Super Bowl? Well, it's going to be interesting. I, you know, I, I think the Jaguars have what it takes to match up with these guys. Um, they have the personnel on offense, well, mostly on defense. So I want to focus on the defense first. Uh, you know, like I said, Tom Coughlin has the blueprint on the on the Patriots. Uh, these two teams actually met together during the preseason for scrimmages, so it's going to be very interesting. I want to see what a how Brady's hand is going to hold up. I can envision Jacksonville's 
defensive line, if they can get to Tom Brady, they're going to try to go after that hand. They're going to try to do anything they can to disrupt, harass, um, you know, frustrate Tom. And I think when uh, Tom gets fired up, it's either going to be feast or famine. He's going to either be really spectacular or he, he's going to be really bad. And as for the defense, uh, Blake Bortles just needs to give the ball to the winner for net. And as Milan as Blake Bortles is, he's actually doing all of this without without Allen Robinson, who's lost in week one. Allen Hearns has been out most of the season with an injury. So he's really doing all this with third, fourth, and fifth receivers. So, you know, as much flack as we all give him, myself included, he's doing this with very limited weapons. And, you know, they're coming through for him when he can get them the ball. And if he can do some great things, I think you really got to put Mercedes Lewis into this game and see if, you know, get the tight end factor going because he's a big tight end. You know, Gronk's not the only big tight end in this game. So if you can utilize your tight end a lot more, you will have a chance to pull off the upset. But it's really going to be up to up to um, the defense to stay on. Gronk, it'll be up to the offense to make plays, and if you can do that, you'll beat the Patriots and go to the Super Bowl. Uh, between the two, I want to say experience will pay off. I want to say that the that the Patriots will win and go from there. This is a very interesting game to me because I think that the Jaguars have the outside cornerbacks to play Gronk double team the whole game. Like, you know, cornerback safety, linebacker safety, kind of play him like the number one receiver and say, okay, Chris Hogan, James White, um, Amendola, okay, if y'all, you know, find a way to beat me using those guys or, you know, convert third downs and things using those guys, then, you know, I'll kind of take my, you know, take my L and go home. But if I'm the Jaguars, Grant cannot beat me you know, just repeatedly like he was doing against Tennessee whenever they would get him in the third down, you know, he just threw it to Gronk and there it was first down, start back over again. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how the Jaguars match up there. And then it'll be interesting to see with Brady having this injury and the strength of Jacksonville's team being their passing defense and their ferocious uh, front four getting upfield. If this isn't a two tight end, try to pound it type of Patriots offense where you get more, you know, off tackle runs, more counters, uh, you know, things to try to take advantage, screen passes, you know, things to try to take advantage of Jacksonville's defense being so aggressive and maybe coming after uh, Tom with that reckless abandon that maybe they can use some of their, you know, ferociousness against them. So it'd be interesting to see kind of the plan of attack that the Patriots uh, employ of this week. So I'm with you. I I think that it's going to come down to the Patriots just, you know, being able to make the winning plays just off of experience and being there before. But I think it's going to be a lot closer than people think. Uh, And it's going to be low scoring. So I'm going to have it kind of like 20 to 17, 20 to 14, you know, not pretty, but the Patriots do enough. And then our nightcap, our primetime matchup will be the Vikings traveling to Philadelphia to take on the Eagles. Um, the Vikings were a team that I thought could get to the, get to this point based on their defense. But like uh, Dwayne said earlier, Case Keenum has uh, come in and done wonders and taken this offense to new heights that I didn't think that, you know, they were capable of once they had all the injuries on that side of the ball. 
And the Eagles are trying to, you know, fulfill this, you know, uh, great season uh, with the backup quarterback, make it to the Super Bowl. Um, you know, haven't seen this happen since probably, um, you know, uh, Frank Wright and um, the guy who uh, Jeff Hostetler, when uh, he played for the Giants, he got them into the Super Bowl once Phil Sims got hurt. So we'll have to kind of see how this plays out. I think the Vikings defense is going to overwhelm. Nick Foles, I think, you know, um, the strength of the Eagles before Carson Wentz got down was that their offense put a lot of pressure on you. They scored a lot of points and uh, they, they struggled to get to 20 points here lately uh, with Nick Foles at the helm. And they haven't really been playing the stoutest defenses. And now you run up against the best defense and uh, Nick Foles not playing really well. So I, I think this could be a recipe for disaster for Eagles fans to uh, this Sunday. So. I don't have a score for you, but uh, Maurice, your thoughts? All right. So um, I want to say this. The I agree with you. And what I want to say is that, you know, they've done enough to win these games. And But the only thing I can really say is the Vikings defense is probably the best defense that's uh, left in the NFC. Obviously, there's two teams. They're the better, one of the better defense of the two. And Case Keenum's the better quarterback of of the two quarterbacks that are left, and I'm wanting to pick the Vikings as well. I think that they have, you know, I think they will channel in their uh, focus, and you know, if Philadelphia wants to get out, they have to get out and attack. You know, I know the Viking try to play on the Vikings' emotions a little bit, see if their heads are still in the euphoria of the Minnesota miracle, but if they don't capitalize an attack on that at the beginning. The Vikings are going to just, you know, go in, do what they need to do, get out, become NFC champions, and and not go to the Super Bowl for the fifth time. So, Did you ever think that you, uh, starting in August in preseason, that you would be thinking about previewing the NFC championship game, and your analysis would be that Case Keenum is a better quarterback than Nick Foles? <laughs> Never. That's the beauty of sports. You just don't know what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, and how it's going to happen. So, right. So, wild thing. (laughs) So, uh, between the two of us, we we are expecting a Patriots versus Vikings Super Bowl, and uh, we'll be back next week to talk about what happened in the AFC and NFC Championship football games. At this point in time, I want you to know that this episode of Another Score is sponsored by Blue Apron. Blue Apron can help you with your cooking, make you, you know, not have to have uh, take those trips to the grocery store and provide you fresh food, especially for those people who are trying to you know, do something about their weight. Uh, these are low calorie, um, you know, very healthy meals that can be delivered right to your door. And if you sign up now through CSPN.us and Blue Apron, you can get $30 off your first purchase. And you can also help keep Know the Score free each and every week. Um, another thing that is good about Blue Apron is it comes with the recipe cards. So, you know, once you, you know, find something that you like, you know, through their menu, you just keep the recipe cards and then you can recreate the meals, you know, um, over and over again, you know, or, you know, you know, get new recipes each and every month. So, again, Blue Apron through CSPN.us. Do it today. We're going to talk our final topic this week. Of course, we got to talk about the NBA 
we had some shenanigans take place as the Rockets and Clippers got together. This was uh, Chris Paul's first time playing against the Clippers since he left L.A., uh, you know, for the Rockets in the offseason. And, you know, he had some unflattering things to say about the Clippers and their culture and, you know, kind of what they're missing to get over the hump to be a championship team. And uh, some of those issues bubbled up during the game. Trevor Reza, Blake Griffith, they had a lot of uh, interaction uh, back and forth, a lot of yapping from the bench from Austin Rivers, uh, ejections. Um, you know, Blake Griffith ran into Mike D'Antoni on the sidelines, just a lot of shenanigans. And uh, it boiled over to uh, after the game as well as Trevor Reza, Joe Green, um, so Chris Paul and James Harden uh, apparently bum rushed the uh, secret back entrance to the Clippers locker room, trying to force their way in to get at Blake Griffith and Austin Rivers. Um, of course, the NBA had a huge investigation. Um, they said they had to get the police involved. Um, after the aftermath and a couple of days of investigating, Trevor Reza and Gerald Green were suspended uh, as they were you know, seen as the aggressors of the four Houston Rocket players that were trying to barge into the locker room. So, Dwayne, this is an unprecedented incident as far as NBA is concerned, at least being reported. I'm pretty sure there have been scraps, you know, outside the buses and things like that that don't go reported. But in the age of social media, now we get to hear about these things. So, I mean, what was your take, especially when this was coming down uh, late that night? You're on mute, Dwayne. Oh, sorry. Okay, yeah. Um, so pretty much, we're talking about the Rockets, right? The um, yes, sir. The brawl, the brawl, the brawl. The- yeah. So yeah, I think this was a lot of a lot of um, tension between the you know you had the former player who you know put helped put the Clippers even more on a national profile than ever before in Chris Paul and him leaving going to Houston. Um, this was one of those things where, you know, kind of where how you truly felt about people <laughs> came out. And it was just wild. I was I was just amazed by, you know, you kind of wonder, was, was it that bad in the Clippers locker room? Was Austin Rivers that much of a problem as people say? Uh, was Blake Griffin an issue? Was his health Frustrating for Chris Paul because I know it could be infuriating. You think you have a very good contending team, and then uh, constantly you're getting disappointed. So, if I'm the, if I am the, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is, if I am, if I'm the, you know, if I'm a Lakers or I mean, not Lakers, if I'm a Clippers or Rockets fan, you know, the Clippers are sitting pretty nice in the West. They're about six, I believe, and. It's one of those things where, you know, you just got to maintain. And I think everything got squashed afterwards. Um, you know, everybody cleared the air. So I think it could have been the heat of the moment. You know, we'll just have to see when these two teams play again, if the tensions are boiling over or if everything's going to be peaceful. All right. That leads us to another issue that's been a hot topic in the NBA. It's been just, uh, you know, problems between the refs and the players. Uh, Martin Luther King Day, we saw a record, uh, it's like 27 technicals and six ejections uh, just on that day alone. Um, and a lot of people are talking about, you know, the refs aren't giving the players a lot of leeway and the, and the, the 
players don't know, you know, they can't seem to talk to the refs and then kind of, you know, plead their case. And the refs are being, you know, quick with the whistles as far as giving out technicals and throwing guys out, especially superstar guys that we normally don't see get thrown out. I know Russell, Russell Westbrook got thrown out uh, the other night, uh, you know, when he felt he got hit in the face and kind of didn't get a call and wanted to plead this case. So, Dwayne, talk about this uh, maybe issue that we have developing between the refs and the players. I know Carmelo the other night said that, uh, you know, he wasn't going to try to talk to the refs anymore. He was just going to, you know, play and, and try not to let them uh, get into his head with their, you know, lack of calls or, or whatever he feels like, you know, things are going against him. So does, is this an issue or is it just guys being too sensitive? Well, I think a lot of – it could be a little bit of both. I think – Guys are very demonstrative, very, they could be over demonstrative when it comes to reacting to a call. Uh, sometimes a call is pretty clear and, you know, you just got to accept it and move on. Whereas others, you know, the technicals could be um, excessive. I, you know, Russell Westbrook, when he got ejected, had a very, very clear case of reacting the way he did because he did get he did get fouled. He did get hammered, and you know you want to call it call the wrong thing against him. I would be fired up too. So I don't know what it's going to take for the refs of the players to have some kind of peace, but something does need to be addressed about that during the All Star break. So it's really one of those things where I'm just going to keep an eye on because you know it could get ugly. I don't think. Nothing's going to happen with, like, the refs going on strike or anything of that sort. But a conversation between the two sides needs to be had, you know. And, you know, I'll start with a perfect time to do that in the midst of the festivities and to see how, see what goes on from that point. But right now it's not a major issue, but it does have the potential to become a major issue if things keep going the way they are. All right. As we're getting closer to the all-star break, we're also getting closer to the trading deadline and the Charlotte Hornets have, you know, opened up the basically the trading season as they have announced that Kimba Walker is on the trading block. They're listening to all offers. I read a report early this morning that they're trying to make a deal with the Knicks, but they really haven't had contact with the Knicks yet. But they're kind of that's who they kind of have their eyes on. I guess they're trying to accommodate Kimba as best they can, you know, since he's a New York City kid, kind of, you know, let him go back to his hometown team if they can and, uh, you know, get whatever assets they can. I guess they're trying to, you know, officially start to rebuild and move on from the Kimba Walker era and uh, go in a different direction. So, Dwayne, I know that this is um, a very sensitive subject to you because you're a big Hornets fan, a big Kemba Walker fan. So kind of um, what does this outlook uh, tell you as far as uh, Charlotte letting everybody know that Kemba is on a trading deadline? It's disappointing, but if you look at the way the team is set up right now, you got Nick Platoon with the max contract. you got Dwight Howard, who has a max contract. you have Michael K. Gilchrist. Because I believe three years, $39 million on the deal. And all those guys are on the trading block as well. Uh, nobody is safe, really, at this moment. It's really not an untouchable for the Hornets at the moment. Maybe the young guys that are coming up. But uh, there's another rebuild going on because you don't want to spend a lot of money for a seventh or eighth seed. And, you know, maybe this will be a season where every weekend 
does come out to be a good thing for the Hornets. But let's also look at this. The Hornets also, they're four games out in the eighth spot in the Eastern Conference behind Detroit and Philadelphia. So they do have that. And they also have one of the easier schedules of the NBA. So this could be a turnaround possibly where they had a, you know, getting stringing together some wins, getting back into the playoff hunt, and maybe advancing up in the East. And, you know, they just got their coach back. Steve Clifford got cleared, and he came back, and the Hornets pounded the Wizards pretty well. And so, you know, it's always good to just see what's out there to, and if you do want to go the rebuilding route. But, you know, also kind of, it did kind of, you know, touch on the emotional strings. When Kemba said he didn't want to be traded, he would be devastated if the Hornets traded him. Uh, he's really grown accustomed to Charlotte. He's really, you know, took the team on his own. He's really made Charlotte his home. So, you know, I, I think looking at the Knicks would be a good accommodation. You know, he could come back home. But, you know, also his family is there in Charlotte now. So um, it's going to be real interesting to see how this plays out. If anything, um, you got to have more than just one attractive trade piece. And Kemba is the most attractive trade piece, which I get why Charlotte is doing it, but everybody else is not as attractive, you know, on, on the market. But if you get a third team in, maybe something will shake. But we'll just have to wait and see. I hope nothing happens. Um, I hope they stick it out and we'll see where it goes. To me, for the Hornets, the the lack of Michael Kidd Gilchrist ever becoming a consistent basketball player really hurt them because that was the one position that they, they've been struggling to fill is that small forward that can kind of play two guard too because Kimber being a smaller point guard, you're at a disadvantage there with all these bigger point guards in the NBA now. But, um, you know, Michael Kidd Gilchrist was a very high draft pick. Um, you know, he was noted for his defense. He was very athletic, but just couldn't stay healthy. And now, you know, you lock him into that long-term contract hoping that, you know, he would, you know, get stronger and, and get healthier, become a more consistent basketball player. And that just hasn't happened. And now his contract is really kind of the contract that's sitting out there that kind of hurts you from keeping Kimba because, you know, he's coming up on a deal. And, you know, like you said, they don't want to pay to be in the bottom of the East um, when, you know, a rebuild is probably necessary because, you know, they've gone as far as Kimba can probably take them. <clears throat> They spent some money in free agency to get Dwight Howard this year, and, you know, that really hasn't added an uptick. Actually, they've actually had, you know, a worse record at this point in the season than they did last year. So, you know, I just think, like you said, Jordan and them, they just maybe, you know, seeing what the market is for their best player, and then they'll kind of make a decision from there. If it's something that they, you know, if it's overwhelming to them, then, of course, they'll make a move. If it's underwhelming, then they may just stay pat and say, you know, we'll ride it out and see where the season ends up and then, you know, talk about it again in the offseason. So, um, like you said, it'd be interesting the next, couple, the next couple of weeks to see if they, you know, get hot and get on a winning streak. And then if that kind of changes the front office's tune, at least for the during the season and the upcoming trade deadline. Other news from the NBA this week, we had the All-Star starters announced. So for the West, we had the number one vote getter in the West, of course, Steph Curry, followed by James Harden, Kevin Durant, Anthony Davis, and Boogie Cousins. So, Dwayne, uh, what do you feel about that starting uh, West 5? You're on mute again. Okay, sorry. Um, so 
pretty good lineup. Um, you know, the West starters looked pretty stout. Of course, the captain of the the captain of the team, Steph Curry, top vote getter. Um, I thought there were a couple snubs. Russell Westbrook was one of them. Um, but it did come down to the matter of votes, so uh, you really can't say it's a starter snub, perhaps, but he'll be on the all-star team. I think the West looks pretty stout, and, and you know, but with the way the new format is, it's going to be interesting to see how LeBron and Steph pick these teams. Right. So over on the East, the starters were LeBron, who was, of course, the overall vote-getter in all of voting for the NBA, followed by Giannis, Joel Embiid, Kyrie Irving, and DeMar DeRozan. Uh, like Dwayne alluded, they're doing this more like a pickup game. So since they had the uh, most votes, Steph and LeBron will be the captains. LeBron will get the first pick due to receiving the most overall votes. And Curry and James, their first four picks must come from the East and West starters. So and then after that, they'll pick from the reserves. And so this is basically going to be more of like a pickup all-star game than, you know, a traditional East and West. I still, as of the recording of this, haven't heard if they're going to broadcast the selection of the teams. I think that this is a big deal that they could draw ratings to, kind of like the NHL when they had their format. And then instead of it being a shameful thing, the last person in the uh, NHL draft for the all-star team would get like a truck or something <laughs> for, you know, he would get recognized for being like the last player would be more of a, instead of a shameful thing, they would kind of turn it into something that would benefit him for waiting it out so long. So I think it could be fun. It could be interesting to kind of see the players reactions that, you know, who picks whom and, and things like that. So I think this is a made for television event. And I think the NBA would definitely be missing out if they chose not to air the choosing of the teams. Your thoughts on, on that, Dwayne, about the NBA still not, uh, you know, saying that they're going to televise this or not? I'm going to say it's going to be, I would like to see it televised, but I do know that a lot of, you know, you got to look at the schedules and things like that too. So I've been kind of factoring that into, they might have, they might have a game or something, but you, if you do it, you want to do it on a day where, well, I mean, no, here's All-Star Weekend on that Friday night when nothing really happens that Friday. You know, we have all this stuff on Saturday. Oh, okay. It would probably well, yeah, be Friday, that Friday. And then, but that Friday night when you have all the celebrity stuff. Okay, okay, yeah. So, I'm sorry. So, uh, yeah, that would be perfect. I mean, you know, you have the celebrity game, and then after that, have the have – the, have the draft right afterwards. ESPN could capitalize on that, and the NBA could capitalize on it. So yeah, you could have really have um, have that going, and and it would be really really fun to watch. I would I agree on that. Just do it either do it before the celebrity game or after the celebrity game. I think after the celebrity game would be better. Yeah, so hopefully, you know, somebody in the NBA offices is listening to this podcast and can, you know, bring the idea up to Adam Silver and the people at ESPN because, yeah, I just think that's a ratings thing. Bonanza just waiting to happen to see if, you know, LeBron's going to pick Kyrie or, if you know, uh, Curry's going to pick uh, Chris Paul or, you know, just kind of the just the makeup of the teams and, and you know, the reactions of, of players getting picked, you know, once they get picked. So, uh, you know, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And they're trying to 
um, up the competitiveness of the all-star game. They just felt like, I guess, the West had too much of an advantage the last few years. Um, I was really hoping for my 200-point uh, all-star game. I almost got it last year. Uh, they got 197. Just missed a couple of missed free throws there at the end. Just missed it. So I don't know if they're going to get up, get it up this high because it seems like everybody's going to be taking it a lot more serious since it's a pickup style um, you know, version of the game this year. But we'll see. So, Dwayne, at this point, I'll open it up to you to see, you know, what your final thoughts are for this week or anything uh, that you want to cover that we didn't get a chance to. Well, I want to say shout out to Billy Preston. Um, so, Billy Preston was a five-star recruit for in high school, and he chose the Kansas Jayhawks. He committed to Kansas last year, was supposed to play this year, but uh, he ended up signing uh, with the professional team in Bosnia. Um, he waited pretty much 67 days after uh, he had a car accident. The NCAA was investigating and investigating and investigating. And, you know, with the season pretty much uh, ongoing and, you know, all, almost halfway gone, there was pretty much no, no end in sight of this investigation. So uh, Billy Preston decided to sign with the professional team in Bosnia. And, you know, for a kid that's 18 years old, you know, wanting to play, itching to play uh, for one of the premier programs in the country and not able to, you know, it's a bittersweet thing because, you know, he doesn't get to do that, but he does get to achieve his dream of playing professional basketball, even though it's overseas. But, you know, he didn't sign an agent yet, so he will be able to come back and do the NBA draft. But, you know, it's disappointing as a KU fan that this could have got resolved. This could have been resolved sooner. But, you know, I really hope that he does well, whatever, where in Bosnia as well as the NBA. And, you know, shout out to him for handling like a true champ. All right. This week, I'll leave you guys with a stat 59 and 0. That's the North Carolina Tar Heels record against the Clemson Tigers all time in Chapel Hill. Clemson Tigers in the history of their program and being in the ACC have never won a basketball game in Chapel Hill. And the streak continued this year as well as this week, North Carolina defeated Clemson. Clemson was one of their better teams that they've had in the last four or five years. Um, came into Chapel Hill, put up a pretty good fight, but like it has happened 58 other times, they came out on the losing end. Um, I've seen, I actually went to a game in 1998 where Clemson had to play the last minute and a half with only four players because they got a player ejected and they had a couple players sick. And so they only had like seven players to start. Uh, so that was wild. And they actually outscored Carolina uh, in the last 90 seconds of that game. So that was wild. I, um, just, you know, uh, they've beaten Carolina in the ACC tournament in Greensboro a couple of times and things like that. But they've never beaten them inside Chapel Hill at either uh, the Dean Dome or Carmichael Stadium, the original uh, stadium that Carolina played in. So, death taxes and Carolina beating Clemson, the three things that you can count on. So, for the Libra icon, Dwayne, I'm Don DeLorente, and now you know the story.